Amen. Amen. As they give, before we start the video, I just want to say you can give online at nlcchurch.com slash give or in the envelopes in the seat back in front of you. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Go ahead. I forgot there's a technical issue with the two. Everybody sing da 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 da. That was an audience participation moment. You missed it. Come on. I, thank you, son. That's my son right there. Well, <laughs> right now we are in our uh, the story of Jesus series. It started at Christmas, going to Easter, to his death and resurrection. And uh, we, we just finished a segment that we called From the, From the Start, which was uh, opening up the early years of Jesus' ministry and the calling of the disciples. And last week, Pastor Todd ended that section where he talked about Jesus meeting the woman at the well in Samaria. Well, you say, that's really early on. What was Jesus doing in Samaria? I'll tell you, Jesus moved back and forth between Galilee and Samaria. If you go to that map for me, you see Galilee is where Jesus lived in this area up here. Um, he's from Nazareth, but he lived around the Sea of Galilee up there. You see Bethsaida and, and Capernaum and things like that. That's the areas his ministry was centered. But he would travel down to way down here where you see Jerusalem is underlined down there. Often. There are three big holidays that the Jewish people celebrate that are considered um, pilgrimage festivals. There's the festival of shelters, there's the festival of Passover, and there's the festival of weeks in which it was a pilgrimage you would take to Jerusalem. So you think just during those three years of Jesus' ministry, he could have traveled to Jerusalem at least nine times and back. So, so he was often traveling, and if several of those times he would go through Samaria, and that's where he had this encounter with the woman at the well. And then Jesus, in our, where we're going to be today, is back up in Galilee in his home state there with his disciples. And, uh, and, and he, he's in this place where he um, goes up onto a mountainside. The crowds are once again starting to build around him, and he goes up onto a mountainside, and it's on this mountainside that Jesus delivers probably his most poignant and greatest sermons uh, uh, that he, he that he preached, at least that we have record of, and many of us know it. It's a dissertation that we call the Sermon on the Mount. How many of us have heard of the Sermon on the Mount? Very good. A high percentage of us. That's great. So it's located, if you have your Bibles, it's located in the book of Matthew, and it goes from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 7. It's three chapters long. And during these three chapters, though, Jesus covers a lot of ground. Um, he talks about a lot of things. He did not get the memo about a good preacher has three main points and then the big take-home moment, you know, the big <laughs> point you take home with you. He covered a whole lot of ground here on, these, on this. And uh, we could really spend, honestly, we could spend a season just sitting in the Sermon on the Mount unpacking all that Jesus talks about and how it applies to us. But we're just going to take over the next like four weeks or so to talk about this sermon and some of the things that were talked about. And so as we set the stage, what I'm going to do today for the first majority of my message is kind of get a 30,000 foot overview of the Sermon on the Mount. What was going on here? Um, what was Jesus saying? Who was he talking to? So first of all, the Sermon on the Mount was not a... Uh, 
was, was not evangelistic in, in its point. He wasn't calling people to follow him. This was rather a message that was specifically to his followers. Jesus was preaching to people that were following him, that were his disciples already, that were in the, in the crowd that was following him. And, uh, and in, in, in this message, some of the most iconic themes of Jesus' ministry are orated in his dissertation. He, talks, he speaks the golden rule. We've heard the golden rule before. Um, he, he speaks the, the Lord's Prayer. He gives that demonstration. He, there's the Beatitudes. He talks about the house that's built on the rock and the house that's built on the sand. He talks about all these things. And these are things that are really familiar to us. I think most of us would say, I'm pretty familiar with that. Um, which, which is nice, but it can also be incredibly dangerous. Because we can become desensitized to what Jesus was really saying and the shock value that it held on what he actually said. Um, Jesus didn't pull any punches in this message. At no point in his ministry did Jesus pull any punches. But here especially, he doesn't mess around. If you were to jump to the end of his, uh, his, his uh, Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7, he wraps it up and it says this in verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. What... Uh, it says they were amazed. They were amazed. Now, I think amazed is a word that kind of has its teeth being taken out of it. I say pizza's amazing. I, I say the weather's amazing. You know, we say amazed uh, pretty loosely. Does anybody have a different translation of the Bible, that, what, a different word that's used there, other than amazed that you've got in front of you? Astonished? I heard astonished. Yeah. Astonished is a good one. Um, and, and if you actually go and I looked up the original Greek of what it actually means when he when they when he says amazed, and uh, it means the Greek means to expel by a blow. It means it knocked the wind out of them when they, when they heard it. It means it means that they were astonished with like a level of shock of panic. I read one scholar said to be out of your mind is what that word means. They were like mind blown. Whoa! It wasn't just like wow. Great word, pastor. Bring it. They were like, this messes everything up. This messes up their entire worldview. This blows up everything they thought they knew about God and what they thought they knew about religion. It shook everything up. And, and Jesus, I think, intentionally tries to make people uncomfortable. Jesus makes people uncomfortable. Well, the moment Jesus stops bothering you is probably the moment you should start paying attention again. And so, and so Jesus, I, I recently was at a conference and I heard the, the, the speaker say this. He said, Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And he came to shake things up. He came to take this group of people that thought they had everything figured out and to shake it up. You see, um, there's a, a for Christians we read this and we try to make it really comfortable for ourselves. We try to read the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, here's how it kind of applies in my context. But the reality is, there's a lot of really heavy stuff we need to take into, into to, to heart here. There's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who wrote, wrote a short book on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in his introduction, he says... Essentially, the history of Christianity is a history of Christians trying to evade the Sermon on the Mount and avoid living according to its plain meaning. So, if, if we truly desire to live out the kingdom that Jesus calls us to, we need to hear what he's asserting in these chapters over the next weeks, wrestle with them, and come to a moment of actual decision. It, you see, this, this, this message obligates us to look under the facade of our lives and say, where do I really stand? Do I really 
live out what Jesus has called us to as followers, as part of his kingdom. And so Jesus opens this message back in chapter 5 with uh, some pronouncements of blessing. We call them the Beatitudes. It's these, these blessings. Jesus says, uh, blessed are the... And all the people up there would go, oh yes, blessed are the ones who are called the children of Abraham. They thought they knew what this phrase was going to end as. You see, they had, they had their idioms. They had their cultural idioms that everyone's really familiar with. They had learned them from the Torah. They had heard them from tradition. But then Jesus took these idioms and he flipped them on their ear. And they're like, wait, that's not how that goes. Uh, like, like our sayings, right? We have sayings that we're really familiar with. You can't judge a book by its movie adaptation, right? No, they, by its cover. There's, there's no such thing as a free credit card offer. Better, better late than... It's never okay to be late. It's never. No, we know these things, right? We know exactly how they're supposed to end. So Jesus would say something and then he'd say, but I say to you. Or he'd say something and they'd go, we know how it ends. And then he'd end it completely different than what they were expecting. I love this about the parables too. The parables weren't necessarily fresh ideas. They were ideas that Jesus took and flipped them upside down. And people were going, that doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus is taking his kingdom. He's laying it out for them. And he's flipping their world upside down. So the people hear this phrase. They know what Jesus is going to say. Jesus says, blessed are the... And then he goes, poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, what? Poor? And they get the kingdom, and 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 then he and then he says, "That's not, that's not how it goes." And he says, "Blessed are are broken people. Blessed are the depressed. Blessed are the desperate. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the persecuted." And and they're going, "Wait a minute, what?" And and by the way, blessed just mean fortunate. When we hear the word blessed, we think of fortunate, right? Like God, God is making you really fortunate. Blessed actually also means happy. And so he's going, "Happy are those who mourn." That's like, it's a misnomer. It doesn't go together. Those words don't go together. Happy are those who need justice. I like to listen to true crime podcasts and, and things like that. And let me tell you, when you hear a victim on there that needs justice, they're not going, I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, happy are those who need justice. And, and this is the upside down kingdom of God. Jesus is proclaiming and he's shaking people up. So just as Moses, a thousand years before, stood on a mountain and delivered the law of God to Israel, Jesus is standing on this mountainside and he's delivering his new law. Not abolishing the old law, but by his authority, he's completing it. He's saying, you've heard it said, but I tell to you. And here's what the Torah says, and here's what I say to you. You heard, don't murder. He says, and you haven't murdered anyone? Good for you. Congratulations on not killing anyone. That's good. He says, but I tell you. If you hold any hatred in your heart or called your brother an idiot, you are at risk of the fires of hell. Amen. He goes, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. You haven't broken your marital vows. Good for you. Congratulations. But I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. He's upping the ante in these massive ways. He says, he says, at the end of this chapter, this is how he ends it. He says, so be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. <laughs> oh, okay. What? This is insane, you'd think. Um, unless you, Jesus says, he literally says to them, unless your own righteousness surpasses that of the most religious people, the most, the most uh, holy person you know or can think of, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And the, I'm sure the average Joe, the, everybody that's listening to this are looking around and they're seeing these, these people that have committed their lives to obeying God's law. They wash their hands a certain way to obey God's law. They only take a certain number of steps on certain days to obey God's law. And Jesus says, you have to do better than that. And, 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 and is anyone uncomfortable yet? I'm uncomfortable when I read this. And this is what Jesus' point is. You see, he's, what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, let's look, let's look at the ocean here. We've got the iceberg and we've got what everybody sees above the surface. But let's look at what's going on beneath the surface. There's all the things that people can see, all the actions we do, all the ways we try to live right, all the, all the, all the behavior modification we try. He says, but let's look beneath the surface and see what's really going on here. And this is where Jesus is going. You see, it's more than behavior modification. Jesus didn't just come to start a new group of people that follow even more strict of rules. But rather, he's going to move beyond the do's and the don'ts, and he's addressing the heart of the matter. He's not treating symptoms, but going after the source of the malady. He's not just going, let's just play whack-a-mole with all our sins, but where's the source of the brokenness that's in, in in, in your lives? Where's the source of everything that's happening here? It's, but what it comes down to, it's an issue of the human heart. You see, 600 years before Jesus, there was a prophet named Jeremiah. Remember last week, Pastor Todd talked about the kingdom of Judah in the north that was taken into captivity in Babylon? Well, when they were taken into captivity, right before and during that time, there was a prophet named Jeremiah, and he saw this coming, and, uh, and, and, and the, the, the people would be taken away. And the reason it happened was they continued to break God's law over and over again for, four, for the past 400 years. From the moment, before the moment, Moses came down the mountain with the law, they were already breaking it. He came down the mountain with the law, and they're already worshiping a golden calf idol. They're like, oh, we're already on top of breaking the laws, don't worry about us. And for the next 400 years, they'd struggle with that, right? They would, they would say, oh, our bad, we'll come back to the Lord, and they'd repent. And within a generation, they would be sacrificing children to idols. They would be uh, uh, doing just the most uh, uh, outrageously evil things, sinful things, falling away from God. And it's a really frustrating story to read as you read through the Old Testament. How many times they'd fall away, and over and over, God would bring them back. Well, finally, the kingdom of Judah reaches a point in their depravity and their brokenness where God says, I'm going to hand you over to your enemies. I'm going to let you be taken into captivity. And the Babylonians come in, they take them captive. And Jeremiah sees this happen. And he sees that these people have stony hearts, they have broken hearts because they keep turning from God. For generations, this has been happening. And this is what Jeremiah prophesies though. Even though for 400 years this has been going on, here's what Jeremiah sees. He sees people who live then by transformed hearts. In Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31 he says the day is coming says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel in Judah this covenant will not be like the old one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt that's the law that was handed down by Moses right he says this law is going to not be like that law he says they broke that covenant though they loved him or though I love them God is speaking this as a husband loves his wife says the Lord but this new covenant I will make with these With the people of Israel, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins." Jeremiah sees that there's going to be a transformational point where it goes from the law being written down on tablets 
and parchment and, and written in phylacteries on their head and on their arm. He says it's going to go from being words and obligations to being seared onto your very heart. That it's your heart's desire. That it's, you're no longer wrestling against that desire, but it becomes who you are. The very core of your being. At this, roughly the same time as Jeremiah is writing this, Ezekiel has a very similar prophecy. He says this. He says, therefore tell the exiles, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I have scattered you in the countries of this world, I will be a sanctuary to you during your time in exile. I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel once again. And when the people return to their homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols. And I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. So that they will obey my decrees and regulations. And then they will truly be my people. And I will be their God. See, Jesus then is on the mountainside. He says, this is the culmination of that moment. This is that moment coming to fruition. It's not about patching up the surface. It's not about uh, knocking out those individual sins and just keep fighting them. He says, rather, we're, we're not stamping out fires of symptoms. We're going to go to the core of the matter. You need heart transplants. You need heart transplants. What does it look like to be then heart transformed people? When we live in that reality, Jesus says, then the rest of this message is about how it looks to live out as heart transplanted people, as people with new hearts that are after God's own heart, and how we live in juxtaposition to the world around us. It doesn't make sense to the world around us. It shouldn't make sense to the world around us. You see, those that live as citizens in this new kingdom then, he says, are going to live as salt and light. Salt and light. And then he takes a moment to talk about being salt and light. And this is where we're going to kind of move to the end of the sermon here as we as we close in Matthew chapter 5 Jesus says you are the salt of the earth but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor can you make it salty again it will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless you are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket instead a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way Let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So as as kingdom citizens, we stand in contrast to our world. We stand apart from our world. And he he compares us to two things, salt and light. Salt is an interesting thing. It was a valuable item in the first century, as it is today. We have just too much salt is the problem. It's in all our food, right? Um, We we have salt all over the place. Salt was... uh, 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 difficult to come across, though. Uh, it was naturally occurring, but however, it uh, it, it it was hard to, to get pure salt, and so um, it, it was a valuable thing. In ancient Greece, uh, there was the slave trade that would go out, and it gave rise to the expression because they would use salt to exchange for slaves. A person was not worth their salt. Which ended up becoming a saying we still have today. Uh, Roman soldiers were partially paid in salt. It was known as salarium uh, argentums, which was ultimately the forerunner in our language of salary. So we still use kind of the word salt in, in, in our language. Um, salt was vital because it gave flavor, it cured food, it, was, it gave food longevity. It was even used for antiseptic purposes. Um, it was a valuable thing. We talked about it a couple weeks ago where on the Sea of Galilee they salted the fish to ship it around the world. Salt was 
very valuable. And so people knew the value of salt. But, but, but as salt in our world, Christians are to be distinctive. We're to, to cause other people to recognize that there's an unquenchable thirst in them that can only be slated through a personal relationship with God. But the thing with salt is it has to come into contact with that thing in order to be useful. If it's going to, if it's going to stay in the salt shaker, it's useless. But when salt is poured out, then it becomes of use. But so often we stay uh, isolated. We stay, we stay separate from, from where we need to be poured out. Um, it's, but the salt should drive... As, as, we, as we come into contact with people in our world, we need to bring people to a knowledge that they need something. There's something about us that they need more of. They, they see that there's a relationship that we have, a confidence we have that they need. It's, it, and it should drive them to a thirst for that, that water that Pastor Todd talked about last week, that living water. There's a reason that in bars they put those, uh, that, that Petri dish on the counter there for everybody to get free uh, peanuts because they know it's going to drive you to want to drink more. It's going to drive you to have a deeper thirst. Let me tell you, the same way the saltiness of our life should drive people to say, I need whatever you've got. Something is lacking. And then Jesus says, what good is salt that has lost its flavor? And that has always puzzled me. And so I googled. I said, how does salt lose its flavor? That, that Google's a good answer machine. And it brought me to, a, it brought me to a, a, an actual salt company's website. And, uh, and the, the salt company's website said, salt can't lose its flavor. It's, it's a stable compound. Salt doesn't lose its flavor. However, the only way salt can lose its flavor is through contamination and separation. Contamination and separation. You see, salt, as it was mined from the landscape in biblical times, was impure. Um, there weren't any refineries. And so um, when, when the sodium of the salt was very soluble, when it would um, go away, it would leach out. That would leave just the contaminated impurities behind, which would be white and look like salt. But let me tell you, it was not salt. And it was, and it was useless and it would just be thrown out. And so Jesus is saying, all that stuff that looks like it should be real, it, it has to be real. You can't have this fake salt. Whatever's, whatever's false, false in your life, it's, it's useless. And the Christian that dilutes their life becomes complacent, allows their witness to be con- contaminated. They lose that property of salt that we're called to be in our world. And the only other way to make sodium chloride not sodium chloride is by separating the bonds. And I've got into that and it was interesting but it's difficult to do it requires electrolysis you have to actually separate those bonds and let me tell you being separated in those bonds takes a lot of work and energy to separate those two because they're meant to be together they're to be attracted to each other and I was thinking about what Jesus said about being the vine and us the branches and being separated in an unnatural way Jesus said in John 15 remain in me and I will remain in you for a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me so are you living as salt I'm not saying be salty we got a lot of salty Christians I will tell you that we really do but have you allowed your witness to become diluted by the things of this world, the cares, the, the concerns, the things that feel so important in the moment. And it's diluted that distinctiveness that's to set us apart in our world. Or perhaps you've allowed yourself to become separated from the source of life. 
And in that separation, there's no longer any fruit being born in your life. You look back and you go, what's actually been fruitful in my life? Has there been something I can point back to and say, God has been developing and working in me. And there's, there's been uh, results as, the, as, a, as that fact. Or maybe you've been separated from the vine and that has caused you to lose that, that, uh, that, that effectiveness. And then Jesus says we're to be a light. We're to carry the light of the world within us. So are we letting that light shine? Again, Israel had always viewed themselves as the light of the world. They, uh, in Isaiah chapter 60, it says this, Darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth, but the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. And, and so when, when the Jewish people heard Jesus say, you are the light of the world, they're like, Isaiah, we know that verse. We are the light of the world. And Jesus says, but you put your light under a basket. And, uh, and he's, he's challenging him, them. He's saying, you're God's chosen people. God is supposed to bring his light through you. But instead of shining the light, you've become exclusionary. You've become inward focused, holding in your own light, keeping people on the outside, keeping Gentiles on the outside, keeping the Samaritans on the outside. He says, why are you hiding your light? In the same way, church, let me tell you, our light is meant to be seen. But how often do we prefer to just shine our light with one another? We come in the church and shine our light and go, oh, look, this little light of mine. Jesus didn't say that we're to be the light of the church. He said we're to be the light of the world. William Watkinson said a phrase that many of us have probably heard before. He said, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And I think often as Christians, we're really good at cursing the darkness. We're really good at saying, man, look at all that darkness out there. Oh, evil, 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 evil. Mmm, dark, 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 dark. Don't you see it? We should start a Facebook group to talk about how dark it really is. We should start a protest to let people know it's dark. And we keep cursing that darkness, just yelling at it, screaming into the darkness about how dark it is. They know they're in the dark. They know they're lost. Our job is to be light. Our job is to bring light into the darkness, not pointing out how dark everything else is, but to stand in contrast by the way we walk, the way we live. It's about bearing witness to the truth and to bear it in love like, 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 like David brought to us today, to bear that truth in love um, and, and to the, the same truth that was given to us when we were lost. And we bear that light so that God receives the glory is what Jesus said. So they may see your good deeds and not say, what a great, great guy. What a swell fella. What a great gal. But so that our God in heaven receives the glory. We're to live this life out as salt and light so that everyone around us gives the Lord the glory. Not ourselves. So we're going to do our connection cards this morning. We're ending plenty early. And I want to ask you this. How has your life been lived out as salt and light? Honest evaluation time. If you'll go to NLC Church, if you go to the connect card there for me, nlcchurch.com slash connect. You can use the seat back in front of you. And there's a, a section where it just has, tell us your story, what we can be praying about. I do ask that you fill that out. Let us know what we can be praying with you about, but also kind of a moment of reality there's three questions I want you to answer here this will be kept anonymous if you 
want to keep this to yourself, you're welcome to. But here's the questions I want to ask you. What part of your life have you allowed to become contaminated or separated from God? As salt, Jesus says, what good is salt if it loses its saltiness? Have you been losing that element that sets us apart in our world? What part of your life have you allowed to become contaminated or separated? Second is this question. Has your light been shining? And has it been shining for His glory? Or has it been shining for your glory? Has your light been shining? And third is this. Have you allowed God to give you a new heart? Maybe you've been trying to follow the rules and you've just been left really frustrated and empty. Let me tell you, I've been, I'm a good rule follower. I am excellent at it. Most of the time. And then there's those rules. I'm like, why can't I get that right? And let me tell you, if you have been just running around, you feel like you're putting out fire after fire, just kind of trying to modify that, that behavior, try to fix the behavior. And you say, God, I need you to give me a new heart is what it's about. It's not about, it's not about, uh, uh, doing every perfect thing just right. But Lord, I need to have a heart that's completely fashioned after your own heart, a heart of flesh where this heart of stone has been turning me away from you. I need that new heart. So this morning, once you finished your connection card, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment. If you're in the house this morning, and you say, Pastor Brent, I... I've been trying to fix my behavior. There are, there are uh, things in my life that I, I continually feel like I'm falling over, stumbling over, over and over again. And I, I, I'm, I'm messing up, I'm failing, and I'm, I feel like giving up. Right now, I need a new heart. I need a heart transplant. I need that heart that Jesus offers where he comes in and says, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, where, where, where you can make all things new. And right now, I need that new heart. If that's you in this room... I want to give you that opportunity. This means what it is, is it's giving your life to Jesus, saying, Jesus, no longer am I going to live for myself, for my own purposes, my own priorities, all these things. But Lord, I need to give, it, give, give myself completely to you, make you my Lord and Savior, and I will follow you from this day forward with every portion of who I am. So right now in this room, if that's you, you say, Pastor Brent, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need a new heart. I am tired of failing over and over again and trying to be good enough on my own. I need that. I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I see that hand. Anybody else? Thank you. I see that hand. Yes. Thank you. Father, right now with those that have raised their hands, I thank you that you offer us a heart, a flesh, a heart that's sensitive to your spirit, that's guided by you, no longer just by our own efforts, but it's guided by your Holy Spirit. And so right now we open our lives to the move of your power, not through our own strength, but you alone. So right now, church, we're going to pray a prayer together. And this is a prayer that just affirms who Jesus is in our life. It says, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you came and died for me. I believe that you take away my sins and that you're alive today and that you give me life. And I'm going to follow you every moment of my life from this day forward. So right now, we're going to pray this prayer, and we're going to all pray it together out loud, if you believe it. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you came for me. I believe you died for me. I believe you took my sins. 
And I believe you rose again. And so today, I have determined that I'm going to follow you every day of my life. I make you my Lord. I make you my Savior. Give me a new heart, O God. Give me a new spirit, Jesus. That I can serve you with every portion of my being. In your name, amen. Amen. This morning, I think most of us can say there are times where I am more salty than salt. There are times where my witness has been diluted. There's times where I wanted to hide that light. But if you want to say today, this morning, before we go, Pastor Brent, I'm committing myself to live in contrast to this world, not to be something so abrasive that it, that it, it, it turns people off to the gospel, but someone that stands in the darkness as light, not just cursing the darkness, but as light. And I'm going to make that commitment. Will you stand with me right now? I want to pray over you. As we say, I make that commitment to stand in the darkness. I make that commitment to stand as salt and light in my world. Jesus, right now, your church rises up. That we, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take anything that we are going to be studying these next week, weeks lightly about what it means to be a participant in your kingdom. How radical these words are. Where you, where you call us to, to live at a level that, that seems impossible, but only by your power can we live out this, this, this profound calling to be participants in your kingdom. And so right now, for each person that says, I'm ready to live as salt, I'm ready to live as light, I pray, God, that we would season the people that we're around. We would season the environments that we're around with, with something that pushes people to say, I need what you've got. I need the wholeness. I need the, sec- the, the, the confidence that you live with, the, the assuredness that you hold within yourself. That people would see the light that stands in the darkness that says, I am drawn to that because I've been stumbling over, over all the things that I'm trying to do myself. But I see that you have a light within you. And Lord, that you would give courage to these people that have stood. It takes a courageous heart to stand in the darkness. It takes a courageous heart to share faith. And so, Lord, I pray for opportunities. And I pray for courage to speak out when those opportunities present themselves. God, I pray that, that you would open opportunities in grocery stores at the office, in school, at work, at home. Lord, the people would ask questions and it would open those doors that we would be able to say, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. And we thank you, Jesus, that we get to be the water carriers into our world that says, let me tell you about the one who changed everything for me. We thank you, Father. We glorify you this morning. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. Praise God, praise God. New Life Church, have a blessed week. And we will see you in our life groups throughout the week. And remember those two things coming up for our youth fundraiser and the men's game night. God bless you.